And we are live. It's that time again, everybody. Happy Friday. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Rory Sodder and the News. I'm Rory Sodder, your host. I hope you all are doing very well. The weekend is here. I hope you had a good week. A lot is going on in the media. Big show today. A lot to address. A lot to establish. Many great guests in attendance. Um, guys, I am very excited. Uh, I want to introduce my first guest who's with us right now. We have Michael Waller. Uh, Michael, how are you, man? Doing great. Great to be on your show. Yeah, man. Your first time with us. You've had a hell of a life. I was reading over your resume and your background. I am so impressed. Um, give us a bio, though. Give us a background. Tell us how it all started for you. All that fun jazz. Well, it started uh, as a 15-year-old kid who got duped into a, becoming a anti-nuclear activist and finding out it was a communist campaign to overthrow our government. So I thought, well, from what, learning that at age 15, you thought, okay, uh, what do you do from here? And then I decided I've got to fight these guys. So right. it's been nonstop ever since. Now, kind of take us through the chapters of your life, because I was reading over everything you've lived through, all the adventures you've been on. Like I said, it's quite something. I mean, you've done things that, you know, most people would dream of. Well, when it wasn't like I kind of went, well, I did kind of go looking for it, but it wasn't a plan. It was just sort of stumbling into things and meeting people and grabbing opportunities where they came. And sure enough, so I went from being a, you know, a, a grave digger and, and, and town dump worker and gas station attendant as a high school kid to then working for a U.S. senator as an intern and then working with the Reagan White House, right, when Reagan took over. So it's an amazing leap that that an ordinary citizen could make if you're just in the right place at the right time and take advantage of opportunities. So so imagine being a college freshman when Jimmy Carter's president. You cast your first vote ever for Ronald Reagan, cast it from my dorm at George Washington University. And then by virtue of the internship I had with my U.S. senator, and uh, when you're from a small state, it's easy to get an internship at your senator's office. Uh, made connections with people at the White House who were really concerned with fighting communism and had the foresight to look for really young people who showed a lot of interest and a lot of energy. And uh, and that's how I got caught up in it. So so I was going to go out with uh, as a student journalist to Afghanistan with the uh, Afghan resistance fighting the Soviet army. And uh, a person in the White House who was working with me as a youth liaison or, or a public affairs liaison said, you speak Spanish. Why don't you go to Afghanistan instead? Or it, pardon, don't go to Afghanistan. It was going to be with Soldier of Fortune magazine. Go to Central America instead. And that was where President Reagan's big fight was to stop the spread of Soviet expansionism to our own continent. So I went out with the Contras as a student journalist and then began uh, working uh, for the CIA, still as an undergrad. Now, yeah, and I wanted to get into that in a lot of detail and, and really go um, into each chapter, you know, of your, of your CIA experience. Cause I know you served for quite a while. Um, but yeah, talk about being young and getting involved with one of the biggest organizations known to mankind. I, I can imagine that was quite surreal, right? I mean, Jesus, you don't, you don't really hear that. You don't really hear about that too often, do you? No, and it wasn't like I was working as a CIA agent. So I've never been to CIA headquarters. I never went down to the farm. I never got paid by the CIA. 
but I did get walking around money from a nice old guy who turned out was a veteran uh, of the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, fighting the Nazis in World War II, who'd been a friend of then CIA Director Bill Casey and was actually one of his talent scouts and, and, and money men. So he gave me walking around money that I found out 30 years later was from Casey's pocket. So, wow. so I was part of a, a privately funded network, privately funded by the CIA director with his own money. So he wouldn't have to tell Congress. And, uh, and so that's how it all started down in, in uh, Central America. And I was, I was collecting intelligence on Soviet military support for communist guerrillas in the region. Uh, because they weren't getting a lot of information that they needed from traditional CIA channels. Wow. And and I, I want to ask you, um, you know, your boss back in the day, the way the CIA ran things compared to now, obviously night and day, right? You, you, can't, you can't compare the two. It'd be like comparing apples and oranges, obviously. Not even, for, yeah. For, yeah. For, many, for many reasons, but I would say the main reason is just how corrupt they've become. I mean, it is so bad. I mean, I, I don't think we've ever seen anything like this, but I want you to uh, explain uh, why you think it's so much different and you can't really compare. Well, intelligence is a nasty business anyway. You know, you can't be, you know, you, you it works very uh, uniquely. If you're going to be infiltrating terrorist groups or communist groups, or mm. you know, if you're going to infiltrate the bad guys, you can't, you know, you have to interact with them. You have to, it, it's like, it's like uh, cops uh, penetrating uh, organized criminal groups or something. You have to be engaged in some of the worst forms of humanity that you can find. So, right. So there is that. That's part of the nature of a good intelligence service, and that's in America's interest as long as it's confined to foreign targets in defense of all of us and our constitutional rights. Right. Where the corruption comes in, you're going to get corruption in any agency, especially when it's tax money that's not well audited and, and really bad people go wrong. So you had instances of there was a contract pilot who was running arms to the Contras in Central America. I was working with the Contras. Uh, but then he was flying back with cocaine from Colombia. That wasn't a CIA operation, even though that's what the popular books and even movies have have said. It was just a, a, a rogue pilot, and there were a couple of them, who were doing this to make money on the side. It wasn't to make money for the Contras because they never saw it. Having been down there in the middle of seeing it, and I was working with them on and off for a period of seven years, ultimately, and I got to know the whole leadership of the Nicaraguan resistance movement. And they were not getting drug money. They, they were getting their arms, really. The, most of their arms were from uh, from the Palestine Liberation Organization. When the Israelis drove the Palestinian terrorists into the sea in, in uh, 1982, uh, we were driving trucks of arms uh, from the port in Honduras to the contrabase in these coffee trucks. So, I mean, we, we, I saw exactly where the money was going, and this was free stuff from the Israelis. So it, it's, but it's the kind of thing where you, you just sort of fall into these things and you grab these experiences and it looks surreal as you say it in retrospect, um, but it just seemed normal. It's just kind of the things you do and it's okay, let's do this now. Let's do that now. You end up doing it. Now we hear a lot of stories. We hear, you know, things that are true, things that are untrue. Did you ever experience anything like out of the ordinary things that were scary 
you know, things that tra were traumatizing, things that you saw as problematic, um, just with certain certain people handling certain things going going about. Yeah, and you're going to get that again. I was more of a free agent. I just did what I wanted to, and I right. reported to a CIA a national intelligence officer at the White House. So I didn't have a control officer or anything like that. Mm -hmm. I just went out and did stuff, went around looking, built relationships with people on my own, and then brought it back because there were whoever was collecting uh, information on the ground. Some were doing a good job for the CIA. Some right. were doing a terrible job. And right. over at the Defense Intelligence Agency, I didn't know at the time, and nobody would know until much later, the analyst handling my area of operations, Nicaragua and El Salvador, was a Cuban spy. Wait, what? She was a spy, yeah. Wait, wait, what? Whoa, wow. Yeah. How did that happen? Somebody that's about, say that, say that again. Her name was Alabella Montes. She was a Cuban spy for years for Fidel Castro at the Defense Intelligence Agency. And she was responsible for analysis for Nicaragua and El Salvador at the time we were fighting the communist government in Nicaragua and helping the anti-communist government against a communist insurgency in El Salvador. She actually had it so that a, a private Gregory Fronius um, up at the El Paraiso base in El Salvador was targeted for murder by the communist guerrillas as a propaganda act to pressure Congress to cut off USAID to El Salvador. She was the one who set him up to be killed. Wow. How much interaction did you have with her? Oh, I never met her. I never worked with oh. the Defense Intelligence Agency, but I, we, I learned out long after because the stuff I was collecting on the ground, and it wasn't dramatic stuff. It was just useful stuff. Mm -hmm. People were saying from the Defense Intelligence Agency, well, well, this, you know, they, they weren't getting this kind of intelligence from the Defense Intelligence Agency, or it was being analyzed in a very benign way. Well, it turns out it was being analyzed by a Cuban spy. So, so that's why Bill Casey at the CIA, he had problems with CIA collection and CIA analysts. They didn't have many people on the ground in Central America. So, and, and when you do, when you have agents on the ground, they're very few, and then they have to build long-term relationships, relationships with the locals. So I just kind of hung out there and I was harmless. I was just a kid and I made great relationships with Salvadoran military and got to be out there when they would capture a guerrilla commander or, or they'd killed one and we go through the backpack to see what they have and, and go through their radios. They didn't have cell phones then or internet, of course. So, so, and then you find mostly tactical stuff that's of not what Casey was looking for, but the big stuff, like what are the Soviets doing? And how often does that sort of incompetence happen where you have spies running the show without knowing. I mean, do you think this thing happens more than people think and it just, it goes under the radar and they don't get caught? And uh, I mean, I can only imagine with the leadership now, you, you have to wonder, you have to be suspicious and be worried. Yeah. yeah. Well, the leader, the thing is we don't know, right? You don't know if there's a spy. It would be pretty easy with this weak leadership. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but even just think though, just think of personal relationships. How do you know when your girlfriend is cheating on you? Right. And you might even see the signs, but not want to believe it. And even your friends might tell you, but you still don't want to believe it. Right. So you know, who's the fool? Right. So and then and then so it's just any personal relationship is going to be this way. And the same thing with spies. You just don't know. So 
there was a case where um, I did, I later on, I did my graduate work in, uh, in uh, studying the, the uh, transition in the Soviet Union as the Soviet Union was collapsing. And my interest is, was the KGB. So I was doing my dissertation on the collapse of the, what we thought was the collapse of the KGB. It was really the reorganization of the KGB during the Soviet collapse. And then what happened to it afterward. And um, went went to Russia to do a lot of on the ground research. And I got to talk to everybody then because everybody was wanted to talk at that point. This was in the early 90s. Oh, nice. So my dissertation was published in 1994 and nobody from the FBI wanted to talk to me about my findings. These are scholarly findings and they've been academically you know, peer reviewed. And I'd actually been into KGB headquarters in Lubyanka. I was with the Russian journalists and activists who were ransacking KGB offices. I came back with a lot of documents. I met with a lot of KGB officers who had run operations for decades against the United States. Only one FBI agent contacted me to talk. So I was thrilled. He was an older guy. He was a counterintelligence guy. He was really knowledgeable about the KGB. And we were we were friends for years. And then one day he was arrested as a Russian spy. It was Robert Hansen. Wow. So you just never know. I mean, they're very good at acting and playing that part and that role. It's it's like it's like um somebody going undercover to, you know, try to bust the mob, you know, same kind of thing, right? I mean, similar, like they play this part, like they befriend these individuals and you know, these these people think that you know, they're on their side and then boom. Yeah. And Hanson was, a, was, I mean, I got to know his whole family, his wife, his kids. Right. Uh, he invited me to his house a bunch of times for dinner. Um, we, we corresponded a lot for years and we, we get together for years. So, so when he was arrested though, and this is the weird thing, I had no suspicion of him at all, except he was <laughs> right. Of, That's how good they are. Yeah. Yeah. And he was kind of odd, but then a lot of real talented people are odd, right? So you, you just factor that in. Okay. Uh, but then when he was arrested, I remember the very morning it was announced, I heard it on the radio, and it was a surprise, but not a shock. Now, did you talk to him after that? No, no. He was uh, immediately thrown in prison and I never saw him again. But here's what, so I went right to the FBI afterward, because by this time I was a working journalist with a magazine published by the Washington Times. And I went to my editors and I said, hey, I've been talking to this guy, Hanson. I just think you should know. And they thought, okay, what do you have? And I said, well, he sent me a lot of encrypted emails of classified information that I never wow. used, but he was challenging me to keep it a secret. He said he wanted to test, you know, he wanted me to learn the burdens of keeping secrets. Mm -hmm. So I never told anybody, but I thought I really should give these this to the FBI and let them know what I know so they can assess the damage that he's caused. Six times I offered to, to, provide my computer and everything else to the FBI. Did it through the law firm, a huge Washington law firm that was the Washington Times' uh, law firm. Six times to the FBI. They didn't want, I, to this day, I still have the laptop. They never wanted to see it. Why do you think that is? Well, they, they, their they, agenda? Sent, they sent two, well, no, it's weird. It's just, it's creepy. It's not even a, an ideological agenda. They sent two sets of agents to interview me about certain things, but it wasn't a deep thing. And I, when I told them the types of information I knew, they said, we're not cleared to know this. We should, but so nobody ever came back to me about that. A few years later, I ran into the senior CIA counterintelligence man, Paul Redmond. Mm -hmm. 
And I and I said to him, hey, you know, I've, I told him this story. And I said, and he, he turned to me and said, so you're the guy with the laptop. I said, yeah, yes, I still have it. You want it? And he said, no, we, we closed down the interagency damage assessment team. The FBI did because they didn't want to know the extent of the damage. They didn't want to deal with it. Oh, wow. Wow. So th even if something is really serious and something that can be a game changer and really, you know, bring stuff to they, they just don't care if it doesn't meet their criteria it just sounds like they'll just let things go i mean that's that's crazy to me because it sounds sounds like you had some huge huge uh data and information to give them and they were just like wow yeah it was, it was uh, you don't need to know um i mean it, it was all classified but it was it was such of a nature if you, you're thinking wow this is really serious stuff i have no business knowing this I think the FBI should know what's been compromised. So this, to this day, they don't know. It was, it, but see, the worst thing you can do as an FBI agent, the worst crime you can possibly commit, is to embarrass the bureau. Good point. I mean, that's something I, I guess I didn't think about. Um, yeah, the reputation. That's, yeah. Yeah. So it makes, them, it makes them look bad, right? Yeah. We can't look bad. Let's let's cover it up. Let's fake it. So so then they create themselves as this institution. Now, I really respected the FBI. Mm -hmm. well, yeah, past tense, though, so not anymore. <laughs> I respect a lot of the agents there and the analysts there and what they do. And I understand the situations they're in where they can't speak out because they feel like, well, if I quit or speak, if I speak out, they're going to destroy me. If right. I resign, I have security clearances I've got to maintain so I can find other work or, you know, I, I still am bound by the security clearance not to reveal things. And if I come out as a whistleblower, they'll just completely wreck me. And so I'm here in this career. If I quit, some woke lunatic is going to take my place. So I'm just going to sit and do my job. And others just say, I don't want to deal with this. I don't want any trouble. I'm just going to, you know, follow orders. It's, it's crazy stuff, man. And there's a lot of people that have said uh you know especially in, in in the conservative movement that they want to get rid of the fbi they want to get rid of the cia i don't know how you feel about that um and i wonder what i also wonder what the world would have been like um if jfk would have succeeded in getting rid of the cia because we know he wanted we know he wanted to do that um that was one of his priorities um, and when he spoke out against the CIA, I mean, we don't know what happened, who killed him, but people have said that they were behind it. Who, who knows? I mean, I, I don't, yeah, it's one of those things where I can't figure out what the hell happened. That, and I, and I, and I really do digging. I like to do, do my research. I like to get my proper, you know, um, information before I make any assessments. And there's no, there's not, there's no like assessment that I can make on that murder. I mean, I, I, I just don't know what to believe. It's so hard. I've looked at a hundred different scenarios and I just don't know. I just, I don't yeah. know. Yeah. I don't know what to believe either. And, and even though I, 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 uh, I mean, here's the thing you have a U.S. Marine who declares himself to be a communist loyal to the Soviet union, mm. goes to the Soviet embassy in Mexico, defects to the USSR to one of, you know, Stalin's old henchman this was just a few years after stalin's death right he lives in the soviet union 
He marries a Soviet woman. He's allowed to in this post-Stalinist police state. He's allowed to do rifle practice in the Soviet Union. Then he comes back to the United States, set up, sets up a pro-Castro group in, in New Orleans, the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. He's an avowed supporter of Castro. So this is right after Bay of Pigs, where, where Kennedy had tried to overthrow Castro. And then he assassinates the president. And then people say that the CIA did it. And they completely right. give the Russians a pass when there were plenty of reasons for the Russians to want to off President Kennedy because Kennedy's biggest issue as a senator was fighting Soviet subversion in America. So that's on the one side. But on the other side, you have these people coming out and some of them are, are very iffy at best and some of them have some reasons to, to take them at their word. Right. But more than 60 years later, the intelligence community still keeps a lot of the information classified. Yeah. Why is that? Right. You're not yeah. protecting your sources because the sources are either dead or, or irrelevant now. You're not protecting your methods, and that's the only reasons to classify something. You protect the source or you protect the means in which through which you collected the information so that the bad guys won't know. So there's no reason to do either one to keep them secret, yet so much of the material remains secret. Who's covering right. for who? And what do you think in regards to the funding that I was mentioning? The funding of... The FBI and the CIA. I mean, there have been. Oh yeah, shut them down. There have been several uh, politicians and people in the political realm that you know have had desires to do that. I just want to know your thoughts. Well, first, we need counterintelligence to go after the spies who are out to destroy us. We need counterterrorism. We need to fight, you know, child trafficking and kiddie porn and and and. um, a lot of other real legitimate functions that the FBI does. We need the FBI's technical capabilities for, for the crime fighting lab. It's world class. Right. The same. We need a foreign intelligence service to collect and analyze intelligence. We need to run covert operations to defend our people and our interests. So, so it's easy to say shut down the FBI and shut down the CIA. But then, what do we do as a country? It's like saying let, let's just let's just abolish our own nuclear weapons unilaterally and have no army. Um, it makes no sense. So, so there's a, so in, in big Intel, I had some, I put out some ideas that we're talking about in Washington among people who really want a future president to make change immediately. And that is to break up the FBI, which has become too centralized and too powerful, break it up into separate organizations so that, so that there's no more need for a bureau. Cause it's just a bureaucracy. It's a bloated centralized bureaucracy with a lot of first class people in it, but a lot of bad people in it. And it's not simply like Trump had tried just to, to peel off the top three layers of the FBI and put Chris Ray in and think, okay, now I've solved the problem. So what you would do is you would shrink it. I'd, I'd split it apart and shrink it. Yeah, because it's it was even when J. Edgar Hoover ran it, he ran it for 48 years. Right. Despite all the abuses that occurred under Hoover and at his direction, they have not been as abusive as the current CIA, the current FBI today under Christopher Ray. How do you feel about Christopher Ray? He, he's a typical Washington swamp lawyer who made a lot of money at a big law firm and yeah. went through the revolving door in and out of government to get prestigious posts. He's a weakling. What do you he's think about all the local lunatics beneath him? What do you think about? the lowest of the low, like the biggest scumbag on earth, like Brennan, guys like that being able to run the CIA, a place where you used to work, a place where you respect, 
Um, I mean, I, I don't think it gets any more lower. Uh, no, this was a strange thing back then. This was under Reagan. Okay, so he he joined yeah. the CIA, I think, when Carter was still president, but just a few years. He's a few years older than I am, but he yeah. he had voted three years before going into the CIA. He had voted for a Soviet agent to be president of the United States, the wow. Communist Party's Gus Hall. That's what he wanted. And then three years later, he's recruited and gets a top secret security clearance from the CIA. What were they thinking back then? Meanwhile, I was being advised just a few years later. Uh, you, One of my professors who was an intelligence officer, you don't want to join them. They'll grind you down. They'll spit you out. And then another one, the great Angelo Cotavilla, who was then a Senate staffer, he said, you will hate them and they will hate you. So, so, so how is it that you can get a security clearance as a recent voter for the Soviets, then you spend your career... Uh, in, in intelligence. And then when you become CIA director under Obama, you implement a cultural Marxist agenda that was started as a Soviet co covert operation, Soviet active measures campaign, nearly a century before. Yeah. Yeah. Um, were you there when Snowden was there? No, no. He was a contractor with the NSA. I had only helped the CIA for for a few years uh, when Casey was director in the 80s. So it was uh, it was Central America and then infiltrating and disrupting Soviet front groups. And, and what do you, oh, go ahead, sorry. And collecting on them. And what do you make of though, what they did to him? What do you make of how, do you think he's more in the right or do you think they're more in the right? Well, Snowden was a contractor, but he was so low level that to have had the access to information that he was able to get, somebody had to give him a shopping list. Right. So there's some kind of higher level ring there. And I would suspect it's a foreign intelligence service who would have, who would know these types of documents to be able to access because you, you couldn't have accessed what he had, had you not been fed it by somebody who had much greater access and knowledge than you. The problem with, with revealing classified information is it's classified for a reason. You have to protect the people who, collaborate with the United States around the world. They'll, they'll, they'll get killed in many places or they'll get otherwise destroyed. So you have to respect classification to protect the people who are helping America, first of all, and to protect the Americans who are helping America. And then second, you have to protect your, your methods of it, the, the technologies that we use. You know, it's the worst thing is, you know, what the Chinese and the Russians and the others want is knowledge about how, what kinds of technologies we use to spy on whom. And if we, you know, if the Chinese communists know that we have the whole Chinese Communist Party leadership wired and we can monitor their conversations. That's a multi-billion dollar secret for us just to develop the technology, let alone betray it to the Chinese. So regardless of his motives, good or bad, Snowden betrayed the United States by helping our enemies inadvertently to know what we knew about them or figure out what we knew. So I really don't have any sympathy for the guy. Do you feel that... Um... In regards to the CIA, um, like with people in power there, to get to the top, is it fair to say, and do you feel that most of these individuals have to do certain things that are unethical um, and, and definitely, you know, the biggest abuse of power like, I feel like the only people at the top are the ones that are crooked. What do you think? 
Well, those are the ones we hear about. Yeah. Who wants, who wants to hear about how honest and confident? Because I feel like the honest and, and, and good ones, I feel like they it's boring. They stay in the middle or they stay at the bottom. I feel like they don't get to the top because they're not willing to do things that uh, go against their ethics or go against their morals or, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, when you first, we're talking Washington, D.C., okay? Mm-hmm. So take that as you will. Right, you, you, right. There are some really great people, fine people who've made it to the top because they do a really good job. Yeah. So when you have a merit-based system where people are promoted based on competence, it's yeah. great. But right. there's so much brown. And we don't on. have that anymore, it seems like. We don't have the whole competence merit system. We see how the entire system has been hijacked and is being used based on people's color, sexual preference, um, sexual yeah. identity. I mean, it's just crazy. Yeah. So so when people are, are promoted based on woke criteria, this is something that, right. the, that came out of, this is one of the reasons I wrote the book was, what has happened to our country? What's going to happen to our country? If you have, we don't like the intelligence that we're collecting because it's racist right. or, or because you're a white analyst and you're a straight male. Therefore you're, 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 you know, you're a, you're a binary cisgendered, right. you know, so yeah. you're a bad person. And, and the people who founded our country are bad people because they were straight white Christian men who right. believed in a Greco Roman Hebraic Christian tradition. We don't want any of that because it's all just racism and we have to fight all of that. So imagine you have people in the CIA and FBI who hate our founding principles and our founding fathers. And, and really they hate the very basis of what our country's all about. And they say, well, the constitution's a, a living document, meaning we can make it mean whatever we want it to mean. And so we're going to promote people based on whatever oddball criteria. It's all this cultural Marxism that Marx wrote about in 1843, set societies against each other and just rip them apart and rip out the, 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 the ideological and the cultural and the traditional and moral bases of these societies to destroy them so that we can have our dictatorship of, of one kind or another. And that's what these folks are aiming at, whether they even understand it or not. That's what DEI is all about. And so, so have, I mean, just sorry, just recently there was a, a senior CIA, I think she was either the head or the deputy head of analysis, the whole analysis division of the CIA put a Hamas solidarity picture on her Facebook page. Wow. So if you have the, the chief of analysis for the CIA sympathizing with a group that the federal government has designated as a foreign terrorist organization, can you imagine what the rest of CIA analysis is like? Not good, man. Not good. And and I'm noticing you, you brought up the whole straight white male thing. They are reinventing terminology, you know, saying straight white, saying straight is now offensive. You got to say cisgender, you know, uh, this is how you really divide a country. This is how you really divide civilization is to attack the terminologies that we've been using for as long as planet Earth has been in existence. It's just... What a time, man. What a time. Yeah. Now imagine being promoted on this basis. So you can't get promoted at the senior civil service levels in the CIA or the FBI unless you are you are actively an advocate of this ideology. It's, right. it's not enough just to be respectful of your colleagues. It's not enough to be just to shut up and do your work. Or it's not enough simply to just follow orders. You have to be an active participant in this DEI rainbow lunacy that's being imposed on it or you won't be promoted 
are we too late to fix this? Is there is there too much damage? I mean, I feel like it's only going to get worse because I feel like this transgender scenario, I feel like this political correctness, it's a trend and people continue to jump and, and grab onto this trend and they take advantage of it. And this victim mentality is really a big thing right now. So is entitlement. And, you know, I, I see all these politicians enabling it, encouraging it, you know, especially on the left. So, um, so is there time? <laughs> We're running out because if you, right. if it was only wrong. Right. And, and wrong. Republicans, like I've said for a long time, especially the ones serving majority of them do not fight back properly. They they've been, they've been they enablers. Came, the they came to Democrats. They enable Democrats. They, they keep the problems alive and uh, they never come up with real sustainable, effective solutions. They never do. They're a joke. Both parties are a joke. As far as I'm concerned, it's a uniparty. The way I see it, it's a uniparty. Most of them are, are playing for the same team. They're they're getting the same money from the same lobbyists, same special interest groups. It goes on and on. They yeah, go well, they go on drinks together. They go, party, they go party together after hours. They're friends after hours. It's it's like it's like Hollywood. It's like a script. They go there in the day. They play pretend that they're they're against each other. And I just don't like phoniness. But go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. They call Washington the ugly man's Hollywood. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, it's true. So, so, so the seduction there is power, right? So you no, have I'm... people who people who want to serve, and they go in wanting to serve. They many of them are able to keep their mentality of serving the country, doing their jobs, but many of them just get seduced by power. Mm -hmm. And so that's when when you find somebody who's really motivated by power, they're very easy to manipulate, and honest people can't stand up to them. Right. It's true. And, you know, I've talked about many times how, and, and, you know, there, there's, there's two separate types. There's people that go there with good intentions, but I would say that that's still rare. I would say more than not, people are going there for their own self-interest to enrich their bank accounts. But there are those people that go there with good intentions, sadly, and then they get sucked in. And I would say, as of now, we only have maybe one or two percent that are actually uh, still working for us and not fully sold out. I, I know it's a big number, but I would say 98 percent in some way, shape or form are compromised. I mean, when I look at all the numbers, when I look at all the reports, it's bad, man. It's bad who these people get money from, who these people you know, are, are representing. Um, yeah. And, and yeah. It's, we're looked at as peasants. They don't give a shit. They don't, they, 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 well, that's how we get the word deplorables and flyover and all that other stuff. If you look at how the uh, uh, employees and government agencies spend their campaign money. So it's oh, yeah. hotels, private jets, first, first class dinners. I mean, yeah, but, but it's, it's like 90 something percent of, of 96%, maybe even 98% yeah. of, of personnel in the justice department and education department and certain other departments vote democrat all the time now if, if it was 60 percent 70 percent well that's bad enough it should be just reflecting the the, the country if you want to have the, a reflection of the demographics of the country it certainly should affect it should reflect the way the public votes but when you have it overwhelmingly I mean, even the soviet union uh, it was 97 uh, percent of the senior 
or 97% of the uh, uh, government employees were Communist Party members. But now you have, this, even in the Justice Department, 97% of the employees are, are you know, vote Democrat. So, so not to equate necessarily all Democrats with that, that system, but the fact is you have a one-party system within a lot of these different bureaucracies. Strangely, the State Department's one of the most, quote, conservative or one of the least, least leftist of government agencies, according to the Federal Election Commission returns on it, how, how employees donate. So it's when you have that skewed, they have no, um, they don't reflect America anymore. They are, they are uh, completely alienated or at least uh, immune to, the, to, to what the American public's all about. But if you look at the breakdown in Washington, D.C. area, nine of the 20 wealthiest counties in America are in the Washington, D.C. area. And that's an area that has no indigenous industry of its own. It's all big government. And then the companies that come in to become contractors for big government. So it's so it's the American taxpayer that's funding this wealthiest part of the country to run a central government. So the aspiration for someone who served in government after 30 years, you can retire or whatever the agency allows. You get your government pension, but then you go into the private sector to become contractors for your old agency because you're adding value because you know how that agency works and you know who's in there. But you're making far more than you made in your government salary. Plus, if you set up your own contracting company, you can make infinitely more because of the markups on it. So this is what people you know, aspire to. And then they have a a, a standard of living that they've created for themselves and the only place that can employ them is either Washington DC or foreign regimes. What do you make so of all this? an aspiration among many government bureaucrats, especially those in intelligence, defense, national security and diplomacy. Speaking of contracts and bureaucrats and all these corrupt characters, what do you make of all these government contracts that are being handed out like candy? Uh, don't you think it's out of control? I mean, the way all these people can get in there and really, uh, it's its quite something. They make movies about it. They make documentaries. I've looked at this so many times and I'm just like, wow, wow. It's really sick. It's, it, it's, it's, I don't think any movie or documentary, even the best ones have adequately portrayed it because it is so sick that the average citizen you wouldn't believe it. You'd have to you'd have to do it as a novel for people to believe it. Yeah, and these war, these war contracts, especially when we yeah. get into war, and yeah. these, yeah, you know much about that? I'm sure you do, right? Well, I did. I worked for some of the contractors right after 9/11, but it was it was a thing where you go in, you do your job because there's no one else in government who can do it, and then you leave. So there's a there's a good reason to have contractors. It's to do. It's when the government needs someone to do certain work and the government doesn't have that talent pool, whether it's knowledge or whether it's a, a certain capability. So that it's it's smart, but it should only last for a year or two or three until until the problem is solved. What these things do, they call it in Washington, a self-licking ice cream cone that exists specifically to consume and doesn't even serve anymore. So you, that's why you have, even today, you get the Department of Homeland Security, which is another big mess. They're posting today advice on how to stay warm in the winter. Bundle up your children. They tweeted it out in the past few days. 
bundle up your children. Really? Is that what our Homeland Security Department is supposed to be doing now? And then it's now whatever name your gender day. And, and <laughs> lunacy stuff on the, you know, let's celebrate. They can't say Christmas anymore, a lot of these agencies, but they always celebrate Pride Day and with rainbows and all this other stuff. And uh, and that's not, I mean, Christmas by federal statute, that's the name of the holiday, December 25th, by law. But I wouldn't even say Christmas on its website. Right, right. So, so, and as a law enforcement agency, you think, well, maybe you should say what, what the law says. So they're so beyond politically correct because if they recognize, and it's not simply, well, the Constitution says that we, you know, there's a separation of church and state. Well, first, the Constitution doesn't say that. But second, nobody's been questioning the constitutionality of the name Christmas for December 25th. But but the ideology of wokeness is to, you want to get rid of those names gradually to distance everybody from it, uh, not for separation of church and state issues, but for separation of us from our cultures. Right, right. Very well said. Um, I want to bring up after 9-11, talk about that. So you were doing that stuff with the contracts and in that realm for how long were you doing that? On and off for several years until probably 2000, 2008 or so. And then I was a contract instructor for the, for the uh, John F. Kennedy Special Warfare Center in school at Fort Bragg. Oh, wow. But I would be, I'd go down four times a year to do uh, instruction and, and teaching modules for our special ops people. Oh, wow. And, and you know, when you were doing um, this, this whole, uh, with the, dealing with the contracts and in this area, um, what would, what day-to-day -day operations look like? Well, my work was different. So I wasn't, I was not out in the field like many of them were, although I'd been out in the field to, to like, I, I went out to Afghanistan, uh, with Blackwater, which had a huge contract in Afghanistan. So I spent a short time there in 2007 and, and wow. you could, but we were, the United States was just pouring every amount, you know, no costs, uh, were out of bounds to defeat to find bin Laden and destroy Al-Qaeda and supposedly defeat the Taliban. Mm -hmm. And it was just mission creep from there. Then begin, well, let's build a new country for Afghanistan. Let's build schools and let's build this and that. And let's fight poppy production for heroin. And and it be, it just kept, oh, well, now let's have, you know, breastfeeding courses for Afghan mothers. And let's let's build plumbing and, to, you know, plumb toilets for the Afghans. It's like, I was literally, I was there the day a new bathroom was opened up at a training facility with American style toilets and the Afghans come in and within a couple hours, the toilets are full of rocks. Wow. Cause that's what the Afghans use for toilet paper. So they bring their own rocks in the bathroom. They toss them in the toilet bowl. They didn't know what the toilets were for. They were just told this is how you go. Cause it's very, say, uh, uh, much more Spartan the way, the way they live. In how much, how much money? Oh, you wanted to, you you had uh, you wanted to finish your thought. You were going all day. Something? Interrupt me. Um, no, I, I wanted I wanted you to finish. You were saying something. Oh yeah, yeah. There is there was no amount of money that was being spent, but it was all mission creep. So it went from finding the terrorists and killing them all mm. to let's build a whole new giant country and and 
you spare no expense in doing it. Well, that was not what the mission was after 9-11, but it became an industry. The humanitarian aid industry is an industry. It's not really humanitarian aid. It is it is subsidies for the our agricultural industry, where the Agency of International Development will buy American grain to distribute abroad, but they don't, if it rots, it really doesn't matter. And there's all kinds of documentation of how this stuff is left in shipping containers to rot. People aren't up in arms about it because the Midwestern states are making a lot of money having this you know, rice and corn and soybeans and everything else shipped off because USAID is buying it supposedly for aid. Well, what does that do? That jacks up prices for the American consumer who are subsidizing the exports of something that goes to waste so that the farming industry can be subsidized. And it's not the mom and pop farmers who are being subsidized for this. So everywhere you look, you have contracting waste and fraud and abuse. So in, in looking at the Pentagon budgets and, and, and just being around for such a long time, we could have a much more capable, robust, agile military for about 30% of the cost that we have now. Oh, absolutely. And how much money do you think contractors will make through these wars that we're currently dealing with, I imagine a lot, right? We saw how much they made with Iraq and Afghanistan. They're probably going to make a ton with this Israel-Palestine war, and they've probably already made a ton on Ukraine and Russia. Yeah, well, and this has always been a problem since the American Revolution because George Washington's army also relied a lot on contractors, and a lot of them were gouging. But, you know, once we had independence, we didn't have those contractors anymore. Now it's just this multi-generational, ever-growing expansion of this giant contracting industry that has now gone woke. So it's even worse than simply waste, fraud, abuse, and unnecessary buying of overpriced products that we don't really need. We don't even have a national strategy for how to configure our military. We're, we're still operating off the same one created at the beginning of the Cold War when the Department of Defense and the CIA were created to contain Soviet expansionism. And then you just pop on top of that, the global war on terror to the point where, oh no, it's not jihadists that we're looking at anymore. It's people like Rory. <laughs> um, no, oh, absolutely. I mean, they, yeah. I mean, what they're doing, uh, you're referring to how they're invading our everyday life, right? How they're watching us, how they're, you know, um, and they're being paid to invade. We're paying them to invade our everyday lives. Right. right. All comes out of, and not so much out of our pockets anymore because Congress is, is, is uh, committed to, um, to the Uniparty is committed to uh, borrowing the money so that they can pretend not to raise taxes because that would upset people. So they just drive everybody into debt and it's future generations that are going to have to pay off what their predecessors racked up in bills. Right. And, and the military industrial complex, I'm sure you've looked into that quite a bit, right? Yeah. That all factors in to what we're talking about, obviously, right? Fair to say? Sure. I mean, we need fighter planes, right? We need warships. We need bombers. We need satellites and space launch, space launch systems. But I mean, imagine this. It meant, you know, Congress had passed a law, I think it was under Obama, it might have been under Bush, but Obama still supported it to make to give the Russians a monopoly on the engines for our space launch vehicles. So we were dependent on Vladimir Putin by law to buy Russian rocket engines for NASA and for the Air Force. 
That law had to be changed so that around 2012, roughly, uh, to, to and it had to be forced through it, pushed through, so that private companies could emerge to provide NASA with these contracting things. Now, that that did uh, that change lowered the costs of contracting for NASA and for the Air Force for space launches. It's much cheaper to do than before. It, it made us sovereign, but Congress didn't care before because it had this feel-good relation with the Russians, and the other big rocket companies were fine with it as long as we bought their the rest of their their launch systems and satellite systems but there are contractors who will keep costs down because that's their business model and that's their success and that's their popularity but those are rare you've got other ones that keep driving costs up because they have become monopolies with the destruction of competition among companies so before you'd have you know we need to design a new fighter plane or a new bomber so you'd go to two or three or four different companies that would compete now it's just in some cases one company because we've exported a lot of our ability to China and they've literally dismantled some of our companies. And so we don't have these manufacturers anymore. Another thing is just government ineptitude and slowness that will slow anything down. So if you say, you know, I'm going to do, you know, a hundred TV shows for you for a fixed amount and that's fine. Okay. And that works because you're happy. We've all agreed, but then the government keeps changing its mind, slowing you down, delaying you. So now you're making half what you thought you were going to make for the, for the, for more work now. So the next time comes around, I say, I'm going to triple my price just because you guys keep messing with me because it's not profitable. And then, then to keep you on the hook, they'll say, well, we'll give you a bonus. And then, it, then it's okay, great. So you expand and now you compete for more contracts. So your whole business model is milking the taxpayer rather than doing your TV show. Yeah. And, and I want to bring up, um, I, I got a few minutes left. Um, I love having you on. I could talk to you all day. You have so much great insight. What a what a life you've lived. Um, the skull and bones, though. Have you ever looked into that? Have you ever known people that have been in that sort of circle? Because I know that's a big thing. Yeah, yeah, I met some of them. Just work, just working for the CIA. I'm sure you've been around those people, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, there's there's secret societies. This this is like skull and bones is the Yale secret society. Right. And back then, it was sort of the waspy white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, you know, so-called upper crust prestige Ivy League fraternity where blacks weren't welcome, Jews weren't welcome, uh, Catholics weren't welcome for, for a long time. So it was their thing. That that opened up, but you're still part of it. Who was welcome? <laughs> huh? Catholics, Jews, black, who was welcome? Um, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Oh, okay. That was their thing. So that was their that was their elite. And that they that was sort of their refuge that gradually opened up after a while. But it's still a, it's still like it's like a fraternity. They hate it when you call it a fraternity. But it's like a say a secret fraternity. So so you don't say what happens. You, it's mysterious. Uh, some of these are pretty you know, rather lame groups that are just sort of secret for the sake of secrecy and, and elitism and other ones, you know, are real type underground type organizations that will link with, uh, with others as, as societies would. So if you think of it as like fraternity brothers, like I only want to hire guys from my fraternity and I only want to do business with guys from my fraternity. You don't need to know them. It's just, you're a member of the same fraternity and that's just a fraternity thing. But and imagine okay. you, you apply that for covert purposes for political control purposes, for economic control purposes, and then it ceases to be a real fraternity. It becomes a danger. And I remember when John Kerry and George W. Bush, they were asked in an interview, 
Um, if they could talk a little bit about the skulls and bones and they were very nervous when asked that question and they immediately said, we can't really talk mm. about details. And they were, they were there together at, um, at the desk in like a newsroom. And they were, this was a long time ago. They were being interviewed yeah. and apparently they were in like the same circle, the same group. Um, so yeah, I mean, so it makes you wonder it really does. Yeah. Especially if they're not going to talk about it because they, First, the rest of us are thinking, wow, there must be something really, really deep and subversive about this, you know, Bilderberger type conspiracy thing that, you know, so, and you can get paranoid because of some Masonic plot or whatever. So a lot of these things that we have seen in history ended up being just uh, overblown imaginations because of the secrecy. On the other hand, they're secret for a reason, and we don't know what that secrecy is. And if you have neither a George Bush nor a John Kerry will talk about this, why? Well, they do have to keep their pledge of secrecy, but at the same time, you know, and they use those networks as their talent pools for their friends and the people they trust because they're all keeping this kind of oath. Yeah, and the the going back to no, I agree one hundred percent. The KGB, you talked about that earlier uh, when you were working alongside the KGB. Was that when Putin was in the KGB, or was he? Yeah, well, well, when I was when I was helping out the CIA, that was in the early '80s. So Putin was okay. um, he was a K nobody then. Oh, so, but when so I was he didn't in the KGB what till the '90s? Yeah, so he was in the KGB then, but he was a nobody. He, he was um. Here's an here's an interesting thing about Putin, and and this is where we become so politically correct and woke that we can't use really solid intelligence to get our way. Why would you need to fight a foreign leader or sanction an entire country or risk going to war with them when you can simply mess with the head of the leader that's causing you trouble? So Putin, and I found this out, I met him in, in 1994. I didn't know who he was then because nice. he, was just another, he was just another, he was a deputy mayor of Moscow. And but later on when he, but deputy mayor of St. Petersburg. Later on, when he became security minister in Moscow and I saw his picture, I went, wait, I met this guy before. And then I found out that it was him. But he he was he had he's portrayed in the West as this great spy master. He was not a spy master at all. He couldn't make it into the foreign intelligence part of the KGB where he had studied English. He'd studied German. He studied law. All the things you needed to study at the time to be a foreign intelligence officer for the KGB, which was the most prestigious post within the Soviet KGB. But when he went to the Andropov Higher School for his training to be, to go into the Foreign Intelligence Service, they did their full field background investigation of him. And they said, we've got a problem here. When you were a teenager in St. Petersburg and Leningrad then, uh, you were a member of a street gang. And that's okay. But it was a street gang that preyed on effeminate boys and raped them as a power kick. Well, I got this from three separate sources who knew Putin at the time in St. Petersburg, or two of them did. One of them later found his, saw his file. So when he took over the Ministry of Security, the first thing he did was he got his personnel file and, and you know, that was the end of that. But so when he went, so they said, you cannot be a foreign intelligence officer in the KGB because if the Western services ever find this out, you'll be compromised. Because Russian society would never, to this day, doesn't tolerate that kind of thing culturally speaking so imagine the diminished prestige he would have if that was ever known so instead 
they he went into the internal security part of the KGB where they need thugs. That's the thuggish part of the KGB. So his only posting outside the Soviet Union was East Germany. And he was assigned to to as a major in, in the KGB to work with the Stasi at the at a local office uh, in East Germany. And that was the extent of his, you know, spy master activity. It was nothing like that. It was just it was a nothing job. So yeah, so that's Putin's story. So so then so we did a psychological profile of Putin, which is available on our website at securefreedom.org. Uh, it's called Nursing Injustices. And we we modeled it after the OSS and MI6 psychological profiles of Hitler during World War II. And found that indeed he is Putin's a repressed homosexual. So it's not a question of being anti-gay to have this uh come to this conclusion it's just if you're repressed there's you you can never let this out this is your this is a dark secret in your heart that you're carrying with you and you're going to try to overcompensate for it or do something but you'll do anything to keep that secret so we went and we wrote this and thought hey this is something that the um the united states can use as leverage against putin to get him to back off on certain things never did because this we weren't even invited to give any academic presentations on the subject so where we could be grilled and cross-examined there was absolutely no interest in following this up because it would be deemed offensive to uh, say the, the militant rainbow elements here how certain are you that those reports are accurate that he is a homosexual well we got three separate accounts um two of whom were, which were eyewitness accounts and one of which was a, somebody who saw his actual files uh they don't three different sources so that is perfectly sufficient for any academic uh scholarly purpose it certainly exceeds harvard standards so it sounds like the realm that you worked in if if you can get three legitimate sources then that then you believe it to be true i mean that you're saying that's enough evidence what you've been presented with to absolutely uh say it's factual we we would call it with a high degree of confidence okay so, so we can't say it's because he hasn't admitted it there's no you know visual evidence or anything like that but with a high degree of confidence so if you're informing a, a national leader uh, of intelligence you have and you assess it well we assess with a low degree of confidence because we have these reports or with a you know my, there's a whole like a a whole range of levels of confidence that you have but we would call it a high degree of confidence based on the sources that we had but it doesn't mean it was fact we're just saying that it it, it it's something that if it was an intelligence product coming out of the cia it would have which it was not uh you 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 would put your cautionary notes in there but it's necessary for the leadership to know anyway and this yeah. is where you get discussions among people who would disagree or people who would have other sets of facts or other people who are coming forward to either confirm it or refute it. And that's all fine. We just wanted to put it out there the same way um, the British and the American intelligence services thought, let's find out what drives Hitler's insanity to see if there are ways we can mess with his head to make him self-destruct. Is there any truth to the CIA hiring criminal masterminds, people that are genius on the computers, people that are genius in various areas, uh, even though they committed horrific crimes? Because I hear 
this quite a bit that somebody can commit a huge crime, but if they have a talent that these, you know, these organizations like the CIA need, uh, then there could be talks. Yeah. And it's a, it's a normal part of intelligence. Well, they have boundaries, uh-huh. or at least we like to think they have boundaries, but, but so, so I suppose if you're a mass murderer, uh, or, you know, whatever they might say, no, no, thank you. But if you have skills that, that are needed to defend the United States from a foreign threat, let's say a terrorist, mm-hmm. and he's been engaged in acts of terrorism, and by rights, we should just whack him. However, he has knowledge of people and networks and other things we need to get a lot more bad guys than just him. Then we'll have to cut a deal. That's what we had did with a lot of Soviet defectors throughout the Cold War. We needed them for the inside knowledge that they had. We had no other way of getting this information. So we had to bring them in. And we had in, during World War II, right at the very end, the OSS under General Bill Donovan um, brought over an entire Wehrmacht intelligence uh, unit, a very large one under General Reinhard Galen, who was running operations against the Soviet Union. He had networks throughout the Soviet Union for the Wehrmacht against the Red Army and the whole Soviet Stalin regime. So the OSS uh, got him to surrender to us, protected him, protected all his people, got all of his archives and equipment and everything else. And that became our first eyes and ears of a large scale inside the Soviet regime. So sometimes these really tough, ugly choices are necessary. Yeah, now that I think about it, I feel like it's common. I feel like it it wouldn't be a surprise, um, you know, seeing criminals being hired by these kind of outlets because a lot of these criminals can do things that people that follow the law can't do. You know, I mean, these these criminals have some amazing talents like never seen before. And And when you're in a bureaucracy, your 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 vision is narrowed and your room for maneuver is narrowed. And think, you know, you have a good idea yourself and you want to do it. You'll just go out and do it. Or you'll talk to other people and say, let's just get this done. You don't need to go to a lawyer and have you write up a whole memorandum to give your rationale for this. Have it vetted by a series of superiors. Have it discussed at a policy meeting. Then have it run through a team of lawyers to see how much of it's legal. And then grab you by the short hairs while you're doing this operation to make sure that you don't stray out of bounds. That's going to kill your creativity. Yeah. So, So a lot of people, a lot of really talented people, you know, can't join the intelligence community because they... They, they'd be too stifled. So so it's like an artist, right? You can't, a creative person can't exist for the most part in a bureaucracy like that. And it's the same with any bureaucracy, even big corporate bureaucracies. So so if, you, if you're trying to break into, say, a, a drug trafficking ring or, or a Mexican cartel or something, you're going to need to run some of these guys as agents. So you say, so-and-so is, is going to be arrested for this. And you approach him and say, look, we can either arrest you or you can come and work for us, but we're going to destroy the whole network. But you'll, we'll give you a new identity and you'll be able to live as long as you don't mess with us ever again. So you have to cut those kinds of deals. And there are some that like Whitey Bulger in Boston. He ran the uh, Winter Hill Gang. He was a notorious mobster in Boston. Um, Johnny Depp did the movie uh, Black yeah. Mass about him, yeah. which is 
mostly fictitious, but it's based on a true story. The FBI ran him as an asset, even as he still went around murdering people. Right. And some in the FBI actually became corrupted by it. So it's a, it's a dangerous game to play, but it's 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 done. Even when you do things for the right reasons, they can go bad pretty bad, pretty fast. And when you were running operations in Central America and, and, and doing things over there and, you know, working, is it a lot different than working with the CIA on American soil? I mean, is it, are, is it dynamics, stuff like that? How would you describe it? Yeah. Well, the CIA by law is not allowed to run any influence activity or spy on Americans or anything. Uh, no, anywhere. but I know but there's a lot of CIA uh, individuals that work, you know, just in America doing their stuff rather than going overseas and doing stuff. Oh, yeah. Well, you're going to an office every day. You're doing a commute. Right. You're just part of the right. part of the cubicle culture. And, right. and it's necessary. We need to have that. But it's no, but I'm talking about there's there's a lot of people in the higher ups that just sit here in the offices all day and, and go, you know, to Washington, D.C. and stuff like that. But like, what's explain the dynamics of because I know you've done both. I know you've been in the office setting and I know you've also done things over overseas. Yeah, well, I've been in the office setting, but not with not with uh, not with American intelligence. I never worked for or in the government in any you know bureaucratic capacity. I, I would just dry up and wither away in a capacity like that so i always stayed away from it uh but you do stuff out in the field and and it's it's fun especially if you're if you're free to do the things that you like to do or want to do right as a free agent and in this case i was not being paid by the cia i was being paid by the cia director out of his pocket i just and again i didn't know that until many years later but i was free to do as i wanted to and then one day they just they weren't interested anymore I never found out why, but it turned out I did what was needed for the time that I was doing it, and, and that was that. And then Unfortunately, you though, the, the CIA um, abandoned a lot of good people who were who had depended completely on it. And when the when the political leaders' policy changed, the CIA just rolled up the carpet and took off and just left these guys hanging. And some of my friends were assassinated as a result of that. Yes. Good God. Good God. All right, man. Before I let you go, I, I want to ask you, uh, it says right here, uh, you're a senior analysis for strategy at the Center for Security Policy, and you're also the president of Georgetown Research. How's that? How's that going? Yeah, that's okay. That's a small private intelligence group and a, and a, a risk analysis group. So we take private clients, no government clients, and we do we collect information for them in ways that they couldn't otherwise do it. It's all legal and above board. And this is the thing about intelligence. Most of the methods of intelligence are, are very similar or identical to methods employed by journalists. Yeah. So so we, we employ these. It just doesn't sound cool to, to say it that way, but that's the way it is. And so we do we do uh, this kind of work for clients on a case by case basis, very boutique, very one at a time. And we don't take clients that we don't believe in. And speaking of journalists, it says your work has appeared in the New York Post, the Washington Times, the Washington Examiner, the Federalist, and the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, and a few other places here and there. Uh, so, so it's um, yeah, and it's been mostly some investigative pieces and some opinion pieces. I also did a piece for the Daily Beast, which was a neat investigative piece in Mexico. I went down there a few years ago. There was a Mexican insurgency that had begun by the in the Purépecha tribe down in Michoacan. They were fighting the cartels, which had taken over their traditional lands 
clear cut their forests and everything. So they started an insurgent army against the cartels and against the Mexican authorities. And the communists from Cuba had come in to try to uh, radicalize them. And that's when I went down to talk to them. And I talked, I said, do you even know what Marxism Leninism is? And they, no, we were just told we need to do this. It was just stay away from it. You're going to get a lot of people, you know, a lot of terrible things will happen otherwise. Well, sure enough, there was a change in government in Mexico and they were deputized. Uh, the Mexican army came in actually to help them and they were deputized to guard the forests and they were, they were, so it was a happy ending for this tribe. So, uh, and that was all private too. It was a private person said, Hey, come on down here. There's some trouble. So let's go see. And I have to ask you, um, for, you know, speaking of just foreign countries and everything going on and, and we have a disaster at the border, do you think the CIA is ready to pick up on any big terrorist attack that occurs? Because there's a lot of people that think there's going to be a big terrorist attack any day now. Do you think our intelligence community is prepared? Do you think they're ready? Do you think they're the same as when you were there? Absolutely. Like in, in that regard, obviously, earlier we talked about how they've changed with, you know, being politically correct and stuff like that. But in terms of just the talent and being ready, go ahead. No, absolutely not. You get a lot of people who have, they came in, they were in the military first, and then they joined the CIA. Real mission-oriented people. Most yeah. of them are gone. Most Latin America analysts go to Latin American studies programs or come out of those programs in the universities, most of which are Marxist and anti-American. So, to, you know, to think that you would have millions of people from all around the world in an organized fashion illegally crossing our border and no terrorist or Chinese military person or or Russian spy would ever think to insert their own people among those millions. It, it's insane to think that they've not been coming through here in significant numbers and in an organized way. We're really, really screwed. I know you've been around a lot of intelligence agencies. Who? What's the most powerful? What's the, what's the best intelligence agency? What's the most reputable, the, mo the most talented? around the world? Well, you know, we, there's really a lot to be said positively about our intelligence agencies mm -hmm. still. The yeah. National Security Agency is by far the most capable mm -hmm. and it can be used for, for good or for evil. It depends right. on who's in control of it. You mm -hmm. don't just throw it away because evil people are running it and right. and, and and woke loonies are, are staffing it. There's So that's a really fine intelligence agency that's been abused. The, the FBI used to be a great... Uh, uh, law enforcement and counterintelligence agency. No, it was never really a great counterintelligence agency. It was a it was a rather good one, but never a great one. I think the FBI has been pretty overrated over the years. Uh, the CIA, pretty much the same thing. They didn't anticipate from the Soviet hydrogen bomb to the Soviet collapse. They didn't anticipate any of that. They got Vietnam wrong. They got so much more. They had to hire amateurs like me to go out and collect intelligence on the ground because their own people couldn't do it. So, so it's uh, it's a big disappointment there too. Our military intelligence is 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 good. I mean, when you think of the forces we're able to bring together to go out and assassinate, you know, Osama bin Laden, you know, and and take out all these other individual terrorists around the world before they can harm us, that shows the strength and the professionalism of our intelligence services and the importance of why we need them. It's it's the question of the abuse of them and now the wokeification of them that's become the problem. Yeah, no, very well said. Yeah, no, very, very well said. And to conclude here, I, I want to um, make sure you mention this before you go. 
biggest takeaway you want from this new book, everybody to get from, you know. First, our society has been targeted for a century by uh, people with an ideology who want to destroy everything about our society and culture and everything that's good about it and right. to pit us against each other. Whether you're left or on the right, some foreign hostile entity or in a domestic entity is going to try to manipulate us into fighting each other and wrecking ourselves. That's the first thing. And it's a big, terrible mess. They've, they've now taken over our security and intelligence apparatus. But there's hope that this can be reversed if you have a president to come in with a team and with an action plan to implement the very first day he's in office. That's our last chance. Amen. Amen. And I, and I have to ask you this final thing. This is very important. How do we make the CIA less partisan? How do we make it not partisan at all? Because that I, I see that as the biggest problem of all. Every yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you could cut out probably eighty percent of the analysts because it's just too bloated, and you don't you don't need secret intelligence to, for climate change, right? <laughs> you, you know, you're gonna, let's have and they're spying on farming abroad. Well, you don't need secret no. analysts for this. You don't need a huge human resources department to promote wokeness. You don't no. need diversity compliance officers and all this other nonsense. And and there are some we depend on so many other countries' secret services to take their intelligence because they still use human spies abroad where we don't. So we're just using a lot of their stuff. So you can cut out probably three quarters, 80% of the personnel at the CIA, give it a much more focused mission, divide it into a, an analytical a collection of intelligence and analysis unit as a one standing service and a completely separate organization to run covert operations abroad and just gut out the rest. If you get, if you yeah. got over 30,000 CIA employees and only 1500 of them are abroad, the rest are just bureaucrats sitting behind desks. You don't need those. Right. Very well said. Uh, tell everybody where they can find you, Michael, where they can get involved. Let's get you back here soon. I'm on Twitter at J Michael Waller and our website at the center for security policy is well, center for security policy.org or securefreedom.org. Absolutely. Any big announcements, any big projects you want to let everybody know about before you go? Uh, just, just big Intel. The book, this came out uh, last week and it's available everywhere online and at Costco. And I ask everybody this, what's the thing you're most proud of in regards to your work, your biggest accomplishment? Oh, someday I'll tell about it, but not right now. Oh, something that's still kind of in the, in the well, works. Well, there's still people alive and who, who might be adversely affected. But I, th I really think being there, being in the Kremlin the day the Soviet Union was abolished and mm -hmm. working with the people who helped accomplish that around Boris Yeltsin was, was one of the proudest accomplishments that I had. Oh, and you were working for Reagan. You were right around that. Yeah. Well, this was after. This was Bush was president, but I wasn't working with him. I was doing my academic research, but having been involved in political activism, I was using that with my own experience in college Republicans and young Americans for freedom to help Russians, you know, rip apart the USSR. Yeah. Awesome. I love it, man. We'll keep up the great work. We're going to talk very soon. Um, God bless, man. Take care. We'll see you. you too. Yep. We'll be right back, everybody. Stay with us.
And we are back, Rory Schotter and the news. Uh, I do want to introduce my next guest. We have Sam Ronan joining us. Uh, he is running for president in 2024. Um, former Air Force uh, veteran. Uh, how are you, my friend? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, I am running for president and I was in the Air Force. I appreciate that. I, I love I love that, man. Well, welcome to the show. Your first time on. Um, it's great to have you here. First and foremost, kind of give us a bio, a background, how it all started for you, your different life adventures, all that, all that fun stuff. Sure. So uh, my life is not as quite as exciting as your previous guest, unfortunately. Um, I, I'm an army brat. Um, so I was born, raised all over the country, heck, halfway over the world. Uh, in high school, I got a taste for international affairs by going on foreign exchange. And then I realized, you know, I think I wanted to serve my country and follow in my family's footsteps. And that's what ultimately led me into politics is during the October 2013 government shutdown, I was active duty Air Force and we were all called into the room right after we had just sent people to deploy and said, yeah, so the government shut down. Nobody's getting paid. Uh, we're expecting you to come in to do our, you know, to do the work. And I remember asking the questions like, what do you mean the government shut down? we just sent people to the desert you know what there are fatalities and casualties every single day what do you mean the government is shut down and like it is what it is we're here to serve and people in washington are going to do what they do and that was my wake-up moment that uh if i really want to serve my country politics is the way forward not military service unfortunately and then a few things later i am here i've ran for uh, various offices as almost every single political party, um, which I'm sure we'll get into. But fundamentally, I feel that I resonate with people first. And currently in our political landscape, I believe that is with the Republican Party. I think Republican voters do care the most about their country. And I think as a party, they actually respect people who take the initiative and have the courage and the gumption to go for something like this, running for office president or otherwise. So here I am. That's, that's awesome, man. I, and I think it, it always takes a lot of bravery. I think it takes a lot of passion. I, I think, you know, putting your name out there and it, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a huge step. Uh, what made you decide this? Like what, what, what drove it? Right. Yeah. So here's the thing. I know many in the Republican Party um, are very pro-Trump. Uh, he was he was already the president once, and now with the failed Biden administration. I, I used to be, man, but I mean, I have my issues with Trump. I'll tell you what, I, I used to be really big on Trump, but these last couple of years, I've woken up. I've 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 realized and 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 um, have woken up to a lot of things. So to that point, right? A lot of people may have done that, but he's still the front runner. And so the difference between the Democrats and the Republicans, aside from the fact that Democrats don't even believe in the democratic process anymore, they're not mm -hmm. holding primaries, which is in, in my uh, understanding of the law, uh, election tampering. I mean, what else is it if they can select their own nominee without any input from the American people? And now we have to choose between him and whoever the actual democratically elected person from the primaries from the Republican side gets put up, right? It's a big, convoluted mess, which is why I'm running, specifically why I'm running as someone who is not wealthy, not powerful, not in these scenes as a regular 
American citizen. No different than you, no different than your audience. Sure, fine, I, I might have had a few different life experiences. I have military service and so on and so forth. But fundamentally, I have to live with the consequences of the actions of Washington. When the price of groceries goes up, when the price of rent goes up, uh, I suffer the same consequences. I've had to you know, choose between eating and rent before. I've, I've been there. I've watched my life savings go up and down like a roller coaster for the past decade. And for as far as I can remember, our nation has been at war. And throughout that entire time, the number one thing that both parties can agree on is that they do not care about the American people. Because how is it that they can find new and more imaginative ways to give tax breaks to the wealthy and the powerful and themselves while we, the people, suffer from record inflation, which is actually price gouging because these same companies have record profits? Yet that's not addressed. That's not discussed. The PPP loans are being uh, forgiven hand over fist, yet the debt that we incurred to get uh, college degrees or you know whatever else have you is being held over our heads like literally a weight, like an anchor, and an entire generation is drowning. Now they have the audacity to raise the retirement age to 70 when the life expectancy isn't even 67? I, there's just, it's, it's blatantly obvious now that our leaders, our elected officials, and those who choose to run for office do not give a damn about the American people, which is why we need representatives who do who are American people, like the founding fathers intended. You go from your farm, you run for office, you go to Washington, you serve your country, then you go back to the farm. You don't become a career politician and then turn into a lobbyist and then keep going through the revolving door. Right, right. The term limits are a must. I don't Absolutely. Think, I don't think we're ever going to see that, unfortunately, though. I think that's political suicide for those people. I don't think they'll ever you know, past that. I know they bring it to the floor to vote on it, but <laughs> that's political theater, in my opinion. They, they, they're they never, they, you know, they, we have people that do that just to make themselves look good. Mm -hmm. And in reality, um, I think even the people that bring it forward know it knows that it will never pass, you know. Well, and it goes back to the question of checks and balances, right? There's a lot of discussion that Biden is overreaching his executive authority, and we can have that discussion. I don't mind. Yeah, and so did Trump. <laughs> so did Trump. So did Trump, right? So, yeah. I mean, it doesn't matter who, which which uh, president. I mean, even Obama and Clinton and, and oh, Bush. Bush. Everybody. Everybody. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's always been an argument, right? Yeah. But at the end of the day, if the president can have term limits then why not Congress? And why not the Supreme Court? I've been, I've been yes, granted, the Constitution says life, but they retire, don't they? So clearly there's enough room to where this discussion can be had and should be enforced in the checks and balances system, not to cut you off. Oh, no, 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 no worries at all. Um, I totally agree. Um, I've been saying for years that there needs to be term limits on Congress, on Senate, on the Supreme Court, um, and how... It's a little odd and unfair how a president is supposed to only do eight years and, you know, but the others are not held to the same standard. They can stay in Washington for the rest of their life if they want to. Yeah, that has, that has, that has to be fixed. I mean, I, I, that doesn't make any sense. You talk about stuff that doesn't make sense. That just doesn't make sense. I mean, it does. And it's one of my core policy issues is right. accountability. Um, yeah. And I don't know. I don't know how anybody. Because there are people that defend this because sadly, yeah. 
Sadly, there are a significant amount of voters that look at politicians like they're celebrities and they are totally fine with all of these manipulative politicians staying there for life um, because they say things that make them feel good. And, you know, that that's the problem for me. The way people celebrity worship these politicians, look, mm -hmm. at, look at the Trump cult. You know, mm -hmm. uh, they look at him like he's more powerful than Jesus Christ. So, <laughs> yes, they do. Yeah, and that's that's a problem for me. Did, 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 does Trump have some good policies? Absolutely, but has he fucked up in many ways? Oh, absolutely. Look at look at all the hirings and firings. More than any administration I've ever seen, he had more scumbags, more lunatics, more idiots, more conniving, corrupt scums than anywhere I've ever seen. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. The people that came in and out of there. And the worst part is like all these. And you, and you know what people say, people try, people, especially people that support him, they try to say, well, he got bullied into a lot of stuff. He, you know, he was influenced the wrong way, get, hiring these people. Well, you know what? He's the president of the United States. At the end of the day, he's the one that makes the final decision with who he surrounds himself with, you know, and then he doesn't take any accountability for this. And then he just blames, blames, blames. And then his supporters have this mentality that he can do no wrong. I have an issue with that, but go ahead. No, I, I, I'm glad you got that off your chest because I was about to fall in line with you there. Because I used to believe that too. From 2016 to 2020, I was on that Trump train yeah. cult. And I used to think Trump was Superman. I used to think he was the greatest thing since sliced bread. But then Operation Warp Speed, I looked at as the biggest, I think it's the biggest, um, I think it's the biggest crime against humanity I've ever seen. I mean, what was done uh, during that time, I don't think there's any bigger abuse of power. I mean, this guy, you know, sold out to big pharma, locked mm. us down, locked us down, uh, over 60% of small businesses closed. Mm -hmm. uh, he really did nothing to get rid of these higher ups. Fauci stayed, Dr. Burke stayed, uh, Alexander a Azar, one of the biggest pharmaceutical lobbyists was running the show. I, 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 I don't know how people can still look at this guy like he's the greatest thing. I mean, that's to me, I would look at that failure as one of the biggest failures ever by any president in history. Maybe the biggest failure. Think about how many people died from suicide, from drugs, from being, taken, from, being taken, from being taken out of their routine, drug mm -hmm. addiction skyrocketed, divorce sk divorces skyrocketed. Like I said, record number of businesses closed. We've never seen anything like that. And then, yeah. and then I have to hear, well, if he wouldn't have locked down or created the vaccines, then uh, the media would have crucified him and the left would have came after him. And uh, he had to do something. He was in a corner. He was stuck. Uh, well, why is his image more important than doing the ethical thing? You know what I mean? Like, how about doing what's right rather than protecting your image? So that's, I mean, you nailed it all in one. I, I don't even have to go too much further. That's the reason. I mean, this cult mentality behind Trump. and It's bad, years, dude. I've never, I, I, now, I, now I understand. Yeah. Now I understand it. I didn't used to understand it, but now I do. And the things that he says, I don't know any. I don't know anybody else that could say these things and would just get a pass. And you know, 
I understand authenticity. I understand no filter. And believe me, I don't like phonies. I don't like people that pretend, but this is way over the top. The shit that he says is way, way to the extreme. I mean, I, I just can't. And half the time it's lies and, and his bit and the base just eats it up. So that leads directly into why I'm running, right? Aside from the being an everyman person, like a, a layman, an actual person that is running for office, right. you, there is no other candidate running. Nikki Haley, for instance. She's horrible. Me I mean, I, I can't stand her, yeah. Yeah, don't get me wrong. Like, if we had to pick between her and Trump, I would pick her. But here's the reason why, and I'll get into this. Nikki Haley, at the very least, has dealt with foreign people like the foreign yeah. head of state and has actually done leadership things without embarrassing herself. So right. could she at least keep her hand on the helm and, you know, steer the ship? Sure. But like you said with Trump, he the man has blatantly said that he will go after his political opponents. I mean, if that's an authoritarianism, I don't know what is. So it's yeah. it's the lack of contrast to his policies, which is why he has remained so popular. And I've said this, and I don't even know how many interviews at this point, his policies, his rhetoric is so dominant because it's what gets views. It's what gets screenshots. It's sound bites. It's, it's the mainstream media trying to get it justified its existence by videoing him and showing him as opposed to anybody else. Whereas right. when you have people that actually give a damn and actually have policies, not all of my policies are interesting or exciting. Like for some of my more interesting ones are releasing the Epstein list and prosecuting them, holding accountability, term limits, right? These are interesting things that people can get behind that can drum up excitement. But there's other things too, like high-speed rail systems, super boring, but super effective to the economy. Smart highway systems, revitalizing our actual economy and our infrastructure very boring, very difficult to talk about it with excitement to get people fired up and ready to get, get out the vote. But these are the kinds of things that actually make this country great. It's when we come together, work together and build things. It's the Eisenhower era that we need to bring back. That's the reflection of Republican Party that we need to aspire to bring back. And that's exactly how I'm trying to prevent, or I'm sorry, to uh, present myself as an Eisenhower Republican. Let's get back to our actual roots when we gave a damn about our country, when we actually worked together, and when we actually were respected in the world instead of mocked and laughed at and reviled. That's my core mission for running for office. And if I get the chance to get on that debate stage, I'll blow each of them out of the water because I have that fundamental contrast to this dystopian nonsense of trying to be a dictator. We're not gonna have a dictator in this country. I refuse to abide it. And I think the American people would agree. So hearing some alternative and actually gaining the chance to see it, having that vision being given to them, to see it with their own two eyes, hearing it with their own two ears, being able to feel it and touch it and truly experience it, that is what this country needs. And it will revitalize every aspect of our society. Now, let me ask you, who would you say you most resonate with on policy, Vivek, Vivek, Ron, DeSantis, Trump, or Haley? So that's a difficult question for me to answer, uh, simply because I don't think I resonate with them on policy at all. Um, I, I think when it comes to foreign policy, <laughs> I am the exact opposite of Nikki Haley. She's bloodthirsty. I think in that sense, I would actually resonate more with Trump. Uh, he doesn't want to go to war. He wants to 
be more isolationist, deal with economics, which even though he did a poor job of it during his tenure in office, it is the right thing to do. We should use our economic might. We should use sanctions. We should stop trade or stymie trade. We should uh, put pressure on these foreign countries that are aiding and abetting terrorist organizations or, or ethnic cleansing or whatever have you that's happening around the world in Africa, the Middle East, Latin America and whatnot. We should be holding those countries accountable where it hurts them the most, their pocketbooks. We don't need to be America police force murdering everybody. Now, when it comes to domestic policy, right, we have a myriad of different issues. We have wage inequality. We have lack of access to healthcare and education. We have the border crisis. And we also have uh, this growing concern with the LGBT community and the transgender uh, issues as well. So I think in that regard, um, I would actually align more with uh, Nikki Haley, ironically enough, actually very interestingly enough, because her policies seem to be more humanitarian focused. Yes, she wants to send all the legals back for, you know, over there, but she actually wants to create something where there's an actual process to get them legal, get them on paper and documented and a part of society. And where we align on that is I want to treat the border crisis is a humanitarian crisis, not a criminal one. Most of the issues that we face in society, in modern society, is humanitarian, not criminal. Right? Like, for instance, drug abuse, yes. right? which we just brought up with uh, the COVID lockdown. Any myriad of things can drive somebody to drug abuse, but we can all agree it's usually emotional or mental. You don't just get somebody out of their routine is perfect for that. Exactly. So that is a social humanitarian crisis that we should be treated as such. But we've chosen to treat it as a criminal uh, cr uh, issue, and we're overinflating our uh, prison system. And which, of course, you know, how many uh, heads of private security firms and private, uh, oh, um, not geez, corrections, <laughs> corrections facilities are in these, you know, state boards and in, at the federal level in those boards as well. It's like you said, uh, Trump. <laughs> talked about draining the swamp and he filled the entire cabinet with more billionaires than any other president in history. Like we, we are not solving the problem. We are allowing the perpetrators of the problem to continue to profit off of the problem, which is infinitely worse because not only is it morally and ethically wrong, they're profiting off of it to, to boot. Like it's, it's disgusting. Like if, if Hollywood, if I went to Hollywood with a script pitching, the last, I don't know, decade of American politics and said, make this a dystopian movie, they would laugh at me saying it was too unbelievable. And yet it is our current reality. Right. And he attacks all these people that used to work for him. Yeah. That, you know, and, and there's never any accountability, you know, like um, never, like he can never say he's wrong. And you know, all these people are so bad, but they weren't bad when he when he had them working for him. You know, he, he used to say how great they were and how amazing they were. <coughs> the guy's a child. I mean, I, I, if this were any if this were any other human being, they would be looked at as a disgrace. If but if he Donald wasn't Trump, a Donald Trump, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Period. Right. Right. And you know what the idiot keeps doing, too? And this is my biggest problem with mm -hmm. them. The Operation Warp Speed and the touting of the vaccines, praising the vaccines. He's going around 
still saying that he saved a hundred million lives and that the vaccines are one of his greatest accomplishments and his supporters are constantly saying how the vaccines are the enemy right but when he That's said right but they're not going to say anything if he says something like that well, you right. know, they'll they'll come back with like oh well he didn't force it you know he said you know make your own decision well you know what he encouraged lockdowns he mm. he was one of those people that was standing by the lockdowns he he wasn't trying to fight back against them i mean there were certain governors that were doing way more than he was doing it's true. And and that's kind of the thing, right? It, it goes back to why I ran for office and why I left active duty in the first place. Our elected leaders, and we can't even call them that anymore because they don't work for us. I, I forget no, what the article, who, who it was from, but I believe it was a New York Times article that stated unequivocally in its headline that less than 1%, less than 1% of all legislation that has passed in these United States of America through Congress, the Senate, to the president's desk and getting approved by the judiciary and the Supreme Court, less than 1%. I cannot stress this enough. Less than 1% has anything to do with the input, will, desire, or want of the American people. So we are not even represented anymore. We right. are electing these people, voting them into office to right. represent and lead, and they do neither of those things because of this, this idiocy that is the corporate spending in our political systems. We need public and fair and open elections. I mean, we can argue about the party system being corrupt, which, you know, we can we can have that discussion. But fundamentally, if I and you and our neighbors could literally get on the same stage and have equal voice, equal time, equal opportunity to speak and be heard, running from school board all the way up to the governor and even the president of the United States. If everybody had that same platform and it didn't matter if you were a billionaire, I guarantee you our Congress would not be filled with a bunch of bankers and lobbyists. Our Congress would be filled with teachers, engineers, doctors, sure, maybe a few lawyers, maybe a few financiers, but it would be people. It would be real, honest to God, human beings. And that's what we need. That That is fundamentally what we need because otherwise we're going to get Trump's or we're going to get somebody worse than Trump. And we're going to get somebody who makes Trump look like, uh, you know, an altar boy in comparison. Cause remember uh, during the Bush junior era, so many people said, Oh, he's so stupid. He's so this, he's so that I kind of wish we would go back to Bush junior. Like maybe we should have given Jeb Bush a chance. You know what I mean? Let's let the Bush dynasty carry on because at least they weren't sociopaths selling out their country to the lowest bidder, unlike Trump, which we both agree and both have said at length, he sold those cabinet positions. And then he gave those cabinet positions to people with a vested personal interest in dismantling those government programs. Like that is insane to me that he is not necessarily just impeached, but imprisoned for his various crimes. I mean, if that's not treason, if that's not treachery in some form or fashion, then what is? And if we can't hold him accountable for those myriad crimes against our country and her people, then then what even is our constitution and our laws in the first place? And that is why somebody needs to run that can not just stand by those words, not just you know give them lip service, but actually mean it. And actually enforce it. And there are ways to enforce it. Executive order is one. 
Judiciary is another. The special counsels are options. There are a myriad different ways. One of the things I want to do is establish universal voter registration and then a opportunity for citizen legislation proposal. Why do we not have a digital election system? Why do we not have a digitized and fully secured voting system where people can propose legislation from the local all the way up to the national levels? Like, hey, maybe Congress doesn't deserve a, sorry, <laughs> they don't deserve a pay raise. Maybe they shouldn't have a Cadillac healthcare package while we're stuck paying for Cobra at $1,200 a month as a healthy young 22 year old, or I'm sorry, 27 year old because of parents' benefits. But you get where I'm going with this. If people had a chance to truly propose things that would benefit their lives at whatever area of responsibility that they want to propose it at and truly engage and actually have a voice, our country would look completely different. And I'm not saying it would be woke. I'm not saying it would be left or right. I'm saying it would be different. It truly would be for of and by the people rather than for of and by whoever the hell's in power. And you mentioned uh, the Bushes. You don't you don't think they're corrupt? They don't they don't worry you? They worry me, but not nearly as. So this is the bad part, right? They say vote for the lesser of two evils between Hillary Clinton and Trump. Who was the lesser of two evils? Quite frankly, I still can't answer that question. Well, back uh, back at that time, uh, well, obviously, I mean, I I think she's pretty bad. I, I don't oh, no. I don't but think they get any more evil. We say that her. we're gonna end up in a body bag somewhere, but <laughs> right. <laughs> but the point is, right? The Bushes, they're no more. It's just like the Kennedys, right? RFK Jr. is not his father or his uncle, right? They you, are, are there things you agree with him on? I mean, I think there are some things I like, but at the same time, his stance on abortion, I can't I can't go along with. Um, his stances on wanting to give reparations, uh, I can't go along with. Um, he There's videos of him 10 years ago saying he wanted to put people in jail for not believing in climate change. I don't know if you saw those videos. They got leaked. But, yeah, I mean, there's there's things that uh, I definitely don't agree with. But other things I, I do agree with him on, and I do see him. And I've never voted Democrat in my life, but I see <laughs> I see that guy as – somewhat of a reasonable Democrat to have a conversation with and to reason with, unlike what the current party stands for. No. And the worst part is he's running as an independent now, like, cause he can't run in the democratic party because they're not holding a democratic primary, which again is election tampering, which is again, voter suppression. I mean, is that not the very definition of voter suppression, but then they'll argue in court that they are a private entity um, that the people who support them should not have any basis in belief that their vote or their voice should have any influence. I believe that was the actual legal terminology that their lawyer lawyers argued um, when they nominated Hillary Clinton um, during the, the what 2016 election. It's insane to me how just blatantly corrupt that party has become to the point where it's pushing out a dynasty like the Kennedys to running as independents. Now, do I agree with the things he, he he says? You know, I think he's more centrist than most. So I think at the end of the day, we don't have to agree on the issues, but we can agree that he will be reasonable. He will listen to both sides and he'll make a decision that has a better impact for the many rather than just being egotistical and egomaniacal like Trump or being fascist and just completely disregarding the Constitution like Biden, right? I, I would say he's like more of a middle ground. Um, at this point, right, 
we don't have candidates with the right kind of recognition, the right kind of policy, or the right kind of vision for this country. What we have is ego, ego, and ego. That's all we got. That, that is the only thing that is running, whether it's uh, Republican, Democrat. We can even throw in the Green Party at this point. Um, I think, uh, oh, who, who's the gentleman with the, the boot on his hat uh, head that um, wants to give everybody ponies? He might be the only other authentic uh, candidate out there. Jesse Ventura? Um, yeah, Jesse Ventura and uh, the... There, I think there's one other person that I was thinking, but neither here nor there. We don't have people running for office that inspire the American people, that actually want to do something for the American people. They are running for president for themselves, right. for their arrogance, to be written into the histories. And that's not why you run for president, right? It is arrogant to run for president, right? You have to have a little bit of ego to say, I can lead the country. There's no argument there. But I can lead this country hand in hand, shoulder to shoulder, arm to arm with my fellow countrymen, not alone. These people think they can do it alone. They think they are the answer. They are the alpha and the omega, and they're not. And they there is no contrast to that. So I'm hoping that talking to you and talking to the others that I've had the um, opportunity to speak with on their shows start to resonate, start to understand that there is a voice out there that is Maybe somebody that you don't agree with on all the issues, by all means, don't argue with me, debate with me. Let's have that discussion. Maybe between your point and my point, there's a better middle solution. Isn't that the whole point of politics is to actually corroborate and discuss, not just draw lines in the sand and die on hills? Like, for instance, climate change, right? Climate change is a very polarizing subject. But yeah. we can say unequivocally that there is scientific evidence that both caps are melting. And because of that melting cap, it is causing different uh, air flows at the poles on either side, which is causing weather anomalies. And that's something that we should be concerned about. See, I've but heard different things. I've heard that, but I've also heard that there are more polar ice caps now than ever before. I, mean, I don't know what to believe. Sure. I'm, that's what I'm saying. It's a controversial topic. I, right. I'm saying... There's scientific evidence. Let's look at it. Let's put the, the contradicting evidence together and see what overlaps. And then what is contradictory, let's actually get that, that overlapping, that, that third party, that nonpartisan group, because that's where it's coming from, right? Like, let's get the actual facts. Let's get the actual answers. When it comes to economics, right? No, Leonard, let's go to term limits. Why do we have term limits for one branch only? That's stupid. That's dumb, and yet nobody has the courage to talk about it. Why are we not addressing the economy in the real way? Like, why are we not finding ways to force businesses to bring jobs back to America, whether it's with tax incentives, whether it's with uh, tax breaks, whether it's with, you know, government funding or grants or subsidies or what have you? Why aren't we doing something rather than allowing record profits with record layoffs and record corporate uh, CEO um, parachutes and golden, you know, million dollar, billion dollar deals. Why are we allowing this to happen when people are starving in the streets, freezing, when homelessness is rising, when homelessness is no longer a thing that is just that crazy person that's lazy and a drunk and a whatever. It's real people who got laid off after doing a decade, two, three, four decades of work. And when it's the elderly who are suffering homelessness at the, the highest rate in American history. This isn't an accident. This is manufactured. And the only people who are benefiting from this manufacturing are those at the top. So why are we allowing this to happen? Didn't we literally fight an a war of independence when this happened to us for a lot less? 
I mean, think about it. We were being taxed at like maybe 3% for tea in the 1700s. And we were like, no, we're not being represented in parliament. We're not having this. And we start dumping tea in the harbor. Now we're being taxed at 33% on average from our paychecks. And we do nothing. We're complacent. This cannot be allowed to continue or else we will not have a country or we won't have a country of freedom. We'll have a country of freedom in name only. And that is what really worries me and why I feel so compelled to run for office. I may not be the best candidate. I may not be the smartest, the wealthiest, the prettiest, but I'm out there fighting for people like you and me because I want a future that we can pass on to the next generation. And as it stands, we'll be lucky if we even inherit the next generation. Right. And have you been out there? No, very well said. I, I agree with you. Um, have you been out there doing events? And Yeah. Um, so not event. like the high ticket, you know, $10,000 a plate kind of events, but, right. um, you know, more localized things, uh, meet and greets, handshakes, um, you know, these kinds of interviews, uh, the after meetings and so on and so forth, uh, trying to build more local rapport. But I do work for a living. I mean, I genuinely have a paycheck. I have a nine to five. Uh, you know, I, I need to work overtime just like everybody else. So it is a different um, approach to politics. I can't, uh, I can't dedicate the same type and the same energy and the same resources that, say, a Vivek who is a billionaire can, right? He can still manage his billion-dollar organization while flying all around the country and handshaking, right? I can't. I have to be at work on Monday morning, right? I have to be at, you have to be asleep at a certain hour so I don't wake up and kill myself on the road commuting to work. So I'm focusing on building those digital communities, right? Through Discord, through YouTube, uh, Facebook, and so on and so forth. Uh, it is different, but it is effective. It is very impactful. It's uh, the ability to transcend the limitations that wealth and audience usually imposes upon those who try to engage in politics. And that's why I'm saying, if nothing else, if I do nothing else with this campaign, but prove that it is possible, maybe it inspires somebody else to try. Maybe not for president, maybe so with president, but it gets them to try, gets them to be active, gets them to register to vote and take more initiative in their local affairs. And I promise you, when that starts to snowball, these people who think they are untouchable, these powerful, rich, just over the top individuals like Elon Musk, Trump, the Clintons and the Bushes, who think they are above us, once the people start to re realize that they are the ones with true power, and the actual authority in this country to get things done, that'll change. They'll get swept off the rug and we will be in power. That is my mission. Perhaps a bit of populist revolution, to put it in simpler terms. What is your um, policies for economics? What do you want to accomplish? What would you do? How would you fix the system? So the first thing I would do within the power of the presidency is legalize marijuana at the federal level. For one, the states are adopting it anyway. And for two, right. the tax benefit that we can generate from that is egregious. Uh, I've, done, I've ran some numbers. Um, what about all the money that gets wasted with, we see a lot of these industries mm -hmm. make a lot of money on taxes and then we can't really figure we can't figure out where all that money goes because it disappears a lot of the time. So but because of the corruption and, and the so on and so forth, right? Yeah. So the way the people talk, I know and I understand when people talk about how so much money can be made in taxes through this kind mm -hmm. of stuff. 
Um, but it doesn't seem like that money being made ever goes, like I said, to the right places, like the infrastructure, into the communities, into, exactly. you know, go ahead though, sorry. Because it's not earmarked, right? It's not explicitly written. And, and I think that's the biggest issue, right? The one thing Trump has said intelligently is that we need to start getting rid of the bureaucracy. And that's true. These tax loopholes did not write themselves. These were fancy pants lawyers hired by fancy pants individuals for hundreds of millions of dollars and shoehorned down Congress and then signed by the president, right? If we simplify the tax code and hear me out with what I'm about to say, and remember that my inspiration comes from the Eisenhower administration who taxed the top 1% of earners at 94% during his administration. The social contract in America has been completely thrown out the window, right? We, the people are the workers. We are the doers. We are the thinkers. We are the thing that gets the other thing done. We are the ones that get it accomplished, right? And we saw that during the COVID shutdown. That was the one benefit of that shutdown was that our economy was destroyed by 34% in two months, which proved unequivocally that it isn't the shareholder, it isn't the CEO, it isn't these C-suite managers and all these boards of whatever, certainly not the government who is keeping this country running. It is the people. It is the American people. And that was the closest we ever came to a labor revolution in this country. So with that premise and that ideology in mind, think of this. I want to take the tax uh, code as it is, throw it out the window. No taxation, no income taxation for any incomes below six figures. All incomes from that $100,001 and beyond starts getting taxed at your normal brackets, right? You're 12%, 24 and all the way up to, I think it's currently 37%. But taking it a step further, no billionaires. Um, and, and I'm going to get to explaining that for a second. Sounds like a Bernie. Sounds like a Bernie approach. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. Remember, Eisenhower taxed everybody above $400,000 at 94%. And the reason behind it, and that's why I said no billionaires, is that it forces industries and individuals to, instead of hoarding cash, which is the big problem, right? The, the wage disparity, the, the wealth concentration in America 90% of all wealth is concentrated in the hands of the not 1%, not even the 0.1%, but the 0.01%, right? That's that's an insane statistic, and it's true. The point of that taxation is that money that is concentrated in the hands of literally a couple thousand people gets put back into either their business, the industry, the community, or the that can then be used in infrastructure and developing things rather than just sitting in the Cayman Islands. People will talk about all the time, how do we bring this money back? Well, you tax it or you fine it, right? It it sounds harsh and it sounds like you're, you're uh, imposing limits on the free market, but what you're doing is just like the, whenever anything happens to the free market, it's like, oh, everything's going to crash. And then guess what? They adapt and they overcome and they're still richer than everybody else, but not at the expense of everyone, right? So the point is, you tax these these companies to such a degree that they are encouraged because I don't want to I don't want to take ninety nine percent of your money. I want you to spend your money that your company earned, that your leadership directed and guided, and all of these employees facilitated. And I want you to grow your business, and I want you to reinvest in your community, and then we can start working into developing our infrastructure. Now. During the Great Depression, the president hired Americans, paid them through the government, right, through the federal budget to dig holes and paid other Americans 
to fill those holes back up again. And it wasn't until World War II when the war effort began and the need for a highway system and, of course, bullets and bombs and trains and guns and everything else was necessary that we actually got out of it. But because of the development of the highway system, and this is where it gets boring, right? For every dollar spent in the highway system, $6 were generated. So I want to reinvest into our infrastructure. I want a high-speed rail system that goes coast to coast across three different parallels of our nation and across, uh, I think it's four of the laterals as well. Putting industrial hubs at the, the crisscross point every 500 miles across the nation. This will generate tens upon millions of jobs, permanent jobs, but of course, even more for the immediate manufacturing. It'll address the joblessness. It'll address the homelessness because, hey, guess what? You will now have the ability to work. You'll be able to pay your way and then afford housing, right? Mm -hmm. We will have infrastructure. Every dollar that's spent on that infrastructure will generate a minimum of $6. Why? Because we have the historical evidence. But what's more is we can now modernize infrastructure. We can do clean energy initiatives. We can do fiber optic internet. We can do smart highway systems, right? There is an infinite number of things we can do with our infrastructure, and it'll be American-made. It'll be Americans making America, much like the steel bridges in Pennsylvania that were trying to be blown up because they were too old. And uh, dynamite itself couldn't break those uh, steel beams because they were made in America by unions, strong unions in America by Americans who did the job right. That's what I want to build. That's how we revitalize our economy. And the social contract is the workers don't need to bear the burden of taxation. That needs to be the money to elite. But in return, the money to elite are generating the jobs, the opportunities, the revenues are facilitating the, the development, dealing with the contracts and so on and so forth. And it is the people putting it together. And in so doing, you can make things like Social Security solvent forever by eliminating the cap. You can make Medicare solvent forever by eliminating the cap, right? These things are simple. All you need to do is download the federal budget put it into an Excel spreadsheet and crunch the numbers. It is literally that simple. And because it's that simple, it can be done. But the thing is, it won't get done unless people like you, like me, and like people who give a damn about their country get into office. So if nothing else, get out there, speak, register to vote, have your voice be heard. This is how we get this thing done, working together. Right, and I wanna bring up Something you mentioned a few minutes ago, um, because I've been talking about it quite a bit uh, regarding yeah. the regarding the worker and the CEO. So <laughs> I totally understand the the part where you know the workers are the backbone. They're so important. Uh, they're such a pivotal part. And keeping a company afloat but mm -hmm. i make the other argument too and, and i've done this quite a bit if it wasn't oh, ready for it. If, it was, if it wasn't for the ceo's vision mm -hmm. and that wouldn't have even been a business in the first place right. the business so, wouldn't exist without the CEO. right so there's two there's two ways of looking at it obviously yeah. give give love respect and support to the worker mm -hmm. but we don't want to have the ceo feel like what they've built is being controlled and, and taken from dictated by the government and preventing other CEOs to rise with their innovation, right? But when you say you want to tax 90%, somebody, 
you know, like uh, a Jeff Bezos of the world, you got to keep in mind, yeah. Amazon employs millions of people. And when mm -hmm. you tax people like that, what's that going to do? Well, more than yeah. likely, it's going to reduce the amount of people they employ and they're going to cut back because they want to save uh, money and they don't want to spend as much. I feel like when they have the tax breaks, tax breaks, when they have the tax leniency, they're more likely to hire more, to do more things, to benefit the economy. I mean, I understand greed. I understand these monopolies, but I feel like that's always going to exist. That's part of the nature of the game. And we've heard politicians, we've heard time and time again, even good authentic people that you know are serving in office say they're going to put something forward mm. um, and nothing ever really, you know, <laughs> yeah. But, but at the same time, I just, I don't, I, I think I think it would make things worse if um, if we would tax these big people because I think it because when you have a company like Amazon empl employing I don't know how many people they employ but I imagine hundreds of thousands um, yeah definitely in the hundreds of thousands yeah but go ahead you were going to say something no um, I I want to tackle this question um, yeah because I, there I, I, and there's a lot of people that have that same mindset when you put these yeah. strict tax regulations on these big higher ups in these companies, it's going to obviously have, the, I mean, think about loopholes, think about the different ways they can go to offshore accounts. They mm -hmm. can, you know, they have some of the best financial minds uh, handling their money. So that's, that's something that you have to take in consideration. I mean, a lot of times it's crazy how they can bypass a lot of these things that are already in place. Cause there are things that are in place mm -hmm. that don't benefit the billionaires, but I don't think it's enough because they have ways um, of going around it. But at the same time, like I said, I, I don't, I understand greed. Um, but I just think regardless of what, what anybody puts in place, I think they're always going to find loopholes. And I, and like I said, I think it's going to reduce, it's going to make them not want to uh, hire as many employees. So I raise you this, and this is why I feel comfortable having the conversation. Mm -hmm. For most of American history, yeah, the upper tax rate, the upper tax rate, I mean, I'm talking the top 1% tax rate, right. uh, which is uh, in our country, uh, the, the floor is at 400,000 and above. Mm -hmm. It was at the highest, to be fair, 94% yeah. under the Eisenhower administration, yeah. who were, of course, as we all know, World War II hero, Republican, the whole nine yards, right? Mm -hmm. That guy. 94%. It was 70% on the day Reagan took office. And then he slashed it to like 27% or something like that in tax social security for the first time in history, which was the largest single shift of tax burden from the wealthy to the working class in our nation's history. So I understand where you're coming from. The wealthy have had decades, over 40 years at this point, of low taxes that they have enjoyed and gotten to benefit from while the American people have been burdened, right? Mm -hmm. It's one of the reasons why I said no income below 100,000 should be taxed. That is the majority of the workforce, but it is not the majority of tax income, right? The taxable income. Uh, when the GDP is $24 trillion, that's $24 trillion or more, uh, it's certainly more by now, of uh, corporate revenue, and thus part of that percentage would then become profits, right? 
So if our history shows us that we can tax the wealthy at 70% and surprisingly enough, we still have the strongest economy, the strongest, whatever have you, then I would counter argue is there is evidence that it worked once it can work again. Will it cause immediate growing pains? Perhaps. Uh, I will not sit here and say it wouldn't. Uh, in fact, I, I might even agree with you to say that it would. But overall, anytime the market disrupts, when the stock market goes up, the rich get rich. Mm -hmm. And when the stock market goes down, the poor get poor and get laid off, right? So at the end of the day, these people are going to find a way to get wealthy, whether I tax them at 100%, whether I tax them at what they are currently. They will find a way to thrive and survive because that is what they do. So if I can at least mitigate that pressure from the American workforce, mm -hmm. I'm willing to take that risk. And I think that's how we address it. The same thing with, um, well, they'll just send it to the Cayman Islands. Fine, then find them three, four, five, ten thousand percent of their missing taxable income. It's like, oh, well, um, Mr. Bezos, uh, you have you know thirty billion dollars unaccounted for. If you don't account for it within the next three months, you're going to be fined ten thousand percent. That will be a massive deterrent from all this stuff. And the same thing with subsidies, right? We talk about welfare queens, right? The poor who are leeching off of the government so that they can have cell phones and apartments and cars and all this, that, and the other food, whatever. But the biggest welfare queens are corporations. We are subsidizing the oil and gas industry hand over fist, and they are still pushing every ounce of taxes that they're supposed to be paying onto the consumer and taking tax dollars to boot and reporting record profits on top of that. So explain to me how that's acceptable, but you know, trying to rein in the rampant corporate greed would somehow be detrimental to our economy. And I'm not saying this in a confrontational way, I'm saying as part of the conversation, these things don't add up. Other countries choose to take this approach and I'm, I'm open to it as well. Most countries say the CEO or whoever the highest person, whatever their title is, cannot make more than X the sum of the lowest paid employee. It's essentially the same thing. It's still a regulation. It's still a, a government, you know, big brother telling corporate, you know, visionaries, this is what you got to do. But perhaps that's more palatable than saying, okay, if you pay yourself a billion dollars, I'm taking all of it, you know. So perhaps that's an approach. I still think eliminating the taxes from the working class is the right thing to do. And the reason for that is if you give a person $50, they're going to spend $50. If you give a rich person $50, they're going to save it or they're going to invest it. And it's going to take magic money numbers in the stock market. And then they're going to have more money that they're just going to reinvest. It never gets put back into anywhere. Right? So more people having more money to spend on more things is how an economy grows. It's the only way an economy grows. Otherwise, it loses 34% during a shutdown, right? So whatever incentive has the least negative impact, whether it's taxing billionaires, like anything $1 billion and $1 and above at 100%, or it's setting a cap, what do we think is a reasonable amount of money and benefit, total compensation package, that we as citizens could be comfortable with that would justify the visionary of the CEO that would allow that portion of the corporation, the business to function as it is 
without detrimentally harming the employees and the rest of the the American public, right? Because these corporations, they depend on the roads, they depend on the rail systems and on our on our air support and, and on our fiber optic lines and on our crumbling infrastructure, right? They depend on this, but they don't want to reinvest in it. So there has to be some give and there has to be some take. And the give is taking the, the burden from the American people and putting it on the people who can actually afford the burden and taking back the social contract of where there is actual balance between the haves and the have-nots, workers versus those who, I guess, for lack of better words, facilitate the labor, right? Because otherwise we're talking about communism where the state runs everything and you have to get your job through the state to do anything, right? So if we're going to have a free market, we have to find a balance to where the wealthy free market is still in compliance with and not subjugating the workforce. So whether it's a multiplier or taxation, I'm happy to have the discussion. But one of those two things is the solution. How do you feel about no taxes at all? Because there's a lot of people that would like to see that. What do you think the country would look like in that scenario? So that's a very interesting uh, topic. Um, I'm living in New Hampshire and there is no income tax, local or state. Um, of course, still federal income tax, but yeah. there isn't even sales tax, which is very interesting. Wow. The only people who are paying taxes are property owners. Wow. So let that sink in. It's almost essentially the same thing I said about only taxing the wealthy, yeah. but with different context. Um, Historically, it was white landowning men who could vote, and that was it in America for half of our history, most of our history. I can't quite remember where that what year it was that it started getting addressed, but that's how New Hampshire manages to stay in New Hampshire, is they just charge out the ass <laughs> for property taxes. But because of that, citizens don't have to pay taxes on food. They don't have to pay taxes on shelter. They don't have to pay taxes on transportation. They don't have to pay taxes on clothing. Like that's insane to me. Like that is truly impressive. And they're still able to keep their highways running. They're still able to keep the electrical grids up and running. They're able to keep the water and sewage flowing. Like that is truly impressive. So to that end, let's get rid of state and local and let's let's just take it even federal taxes and just uh, mitigate it down to property taxes or having um, some sort of minimal, um, uh, what did I just say, um, sales tax, right? Nothing crazy, right? Maybe a 1% or 2% sales tax. Remember, this GDP is in the trillions of dollars, which means a percentage of that going back into the country is also going to be trillions of dollars, right? And if we're talking about property taxes, you know, maybe we start divvying that up. You want your 40 million McMansion? Great. You can pay for it all you want. And then that's how we fund our society. Interestingly enough, and uh, I don't know <laughs> how relevant this is to American politics, but ancient Athens, Greece, it's exactly what they did. Um, they actually had a competition between the wealthiest uh, lords, which of course we don't have those here in America, but the wealthiest members of their city and community would compete to who could actually pay the taxes because in order to pay taxes you had to be the wealthiest 50 families or enterprises in the city that would be a very interesting way to approach it as well okay you're wealthy you're powerful you've done great things let's let's solidify that with some taxes and showing that 
your enterprise, your influence is in fact the, the support of a country, right? There's many different ways to handle this problem. I do like the property tax solution. It might make it harder for people to get housing, but so does a 7% interest rate. You know what I'm saying? So if we can take some reality into check, say um, properties that are $400,000 or less are treated like this and properties that are $400,000 or more are treated like that, we still have a, a healthy divide of you know the haves and the have nots. So it's a very interesting conversation. Very interesting. Yeah, and, and Sam, I, I want to get you back here soon. Um, definitely, I could talk to you all day. Um, but tell everybody where they can get involved, where they can contact you, all that stuff. Excellent. So you can go to the website, samronan.com. You can volunteer directly there. You can donate directly right there. There's swag and, of course, direct dollar donations. Um, social media is Sam, the number four president, 2024, across uh, most of the social media platforms. So reach out to us there. Uh, we're happy to have phone bankers, email bankers, uh, social media posters. We have it all. We have room for all. This is a team effort. This is not a one-man show. What, what are the top three um, things you want to do uh, once getting elected? What are your most important? Real quick. Yeah, the most important things I want to do is hold our elected leaders accountable I want to ensure that the livelihood of the American people is stabilized and equalized. And quite frankly, as boring as it sounds, I want fiber optic internet across the country. I want that to be our next great work that we accomplish. Yeah, and, and healthcare, um, real quick before you go, that's a big Absolutely. one. What would you do to, uh, to tackle that issue? So fun fact about our healthcare system, Medicare actually already pays for each and every single bit of our national healthcare infrastructure. The problem is between insurance companies- It is bankrupt though. They say it has a many financial problems, but keep going, sorry. No, no, no. They do say that because if it was ever revealed that the hospitals are charging multipliers from the Medicare funds that they receive for every single transaction that occurs and then doesn't even standardize the cost of care in the first place, um, they would probably be dragged into the streets, drawn and quartered and, and burned at the stake. Our healthcare system exists to prey on the people. If we didn't have all of those administration fees, if we didn't have the intermediaries to leech money away from people, i.e. insurance companies, and if we actually standardized the cost of medical care so that if you went to the hospital in California or New Hampshire or Ohio or you know some small podunk town in Oklahoma, it would cost the same, not $500 in the one and $10,000 in the other, and then have multipliers on top of that. I assure you, if you look into this, and I want you to fact check me, our healthcare system charges multipliers on the money that is received by Medicare, which is fully funded by the taxpayers through their income taxes. If we got rid of all that fluff and standardized the cost of medical care, we would truly have universally paid for healthcare in this country. So that is exactly what I would do. And this isn't about being left or right. That is literally balancing the damn checkbook and taking these money sucking leeches out of the equation. Sam, I, I like having you on, man. I want to get you back here soon. Um, keep up the good work, man. Good luck on everything and um, have a great weekend. Appreciate it, brother. Take care. All right, Take care. We'll be right back, everybody. Stay with us. 
And we are back, Rory Sodder and the news. Guys, it's been a fantastic show today. I want to thank you all for tuning in. Another episode of Rory Sodder and the news in the books. I hope you all have a fantastic weekend. I will see you all very soon. Until next time, I'm Rory Sodder. God bless. Much love. Cheers, everybody.